This is an e-learning course brought to you by Contemplative Light. We are a community of spiritual teachers and writers, graciously offering our insight, experience, and most importantly, our love. We hope you enjoy your course. So the first Christian mystic we'll be touching on in this course is Dionysius the Areopagite. And this is a figure whose text and writing became uh, authoritative for a lot of the um, medieval scholastics. Aquinas refers back to him a lot um, and, and others throughout the centuries. Um, and in a sense, because they mistakenly thought that um, this was, in fact, the Dionysius of the, of the New Testament who was converted in, uh, in Athens by Paul. And so um, it, it took on the, this air of authority uh, that, and, and contemporary scholars um, have placed him around the 5th century um, AD. And so this is a good 500 years later. And um, early sort of critics um, considered him to be kind of fraudulent, the writings. But instead, as, as time goes on and, and New Testament scholarship develops, and we, we develop this notion of the amanuensis, or the writer who writes in the spirit of, in the vein of a particular uh, figure from the past or even contemporary figure uh, from their own time, um, and then also another analogy for what, what Dionysius was up to, sometimes called pseudo-Dionysius, because this is in fact a pseudonym, uh, is when a monk adopts the, uh, the name of a, a saint from the past, um, it's as if they are somehow placing themselves within that lineage and um, adopting something of the quality or spirit of that particular saint. Like when the, you know, uh, one of the cardinals or, or, or figures in the Catholic Church becomes the Pope, they adopt the name. So Pope Francis is not, of course, his original name, but he's, he's continuing on in the lineage of St. Francis of Assisi, one of our later mystics we'll, we'll, we'll discuss. And so um, Dionysius... Uh, the Areopagite is, is this first figure. And for us, um, he uh, is a unitive. That's the, remember we have the four types we're looking at, visionary, lover, unitive, and iconoclast. And for purposes of this course, Pseudo-Dionysius is very much a unitive mystic. So let's take a look at uh, the, the life and influences of Dionysius the Areopagite. He is that this figure who introduces and infuses Neoplatonic thought into the the uh, the mystical stream, kind of following Augustine, but whereas Augustine was a little more um, doctrinal, Pseudo Dionysius is, is is a little more focused on, or Dionysius the Areopagite is a little more focused on this particular strand of experience. Whereas, let's say, mystical theology is a component of Augustinian thought, it's very much front and center for Dionysius. And this, this Neoplatonic Christianity follows, of course, from Plato, and then as we discussed in the introduction from Plotinus, but then flows through other early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, like Origen, like Gregory of Nyssa, these sort of early Alexandrian mystics, very much 
kind of in the first couple centuries uh, after Christ. Dionysius is um, kind of inhabiting this figure of, of the convert uh, in Acts 17.34, converted in Athens by Paul, and f- based on tradition is said to be the first bishop of Athens, according to, to the writings of, of an author called Eusebius. And instead, uh, as we now know, this is a, a much later figure, um, called by some pseudo-Dionysius. And early in, in the, the Corpus Areopagitica, or the writings uh, of Dionysius, there are references to components out of the Nicene Creed. That's why we can kind of place it historically and, and other components. So we tend to situate it between his writing between kind of 480 and 540. So pretty early on, um, chronologically the, the first in this course. So he, he is a, a kind of late classical mystic toward the end of this initial era of, of flowering of Christian mysticism. And one big big influence on, on him that we, we can, can place is this teacher Proclus, who, who died in 485. So that's another sort of uh, waypoint or coordinate. And his, his corpus is, is traditionally thought to be between sort of 45 and 518. Um, different scholars speculate he, he may have been a, a figure named Peter the Iberian or, or Damascus. Um, certainly we, we think he was a Syrian monk. And what he took from Proclus was this focus on triads, on kind of conceptualizing things in terms of three. And certainly him and, and Augustine is kind of similar in that to, to where by the time we get to Dante in the late medieval period, that is so integrated into, uh, the divine comedy. And it is a kind of theological norm to think in terms of threes, the Trinity. Dante's entire poem is written in these sort of three-line stanzas called the terza rima. And so um, threes, triads, become infused in kind of all aspects of, of theology and, the, and then therefore kind of late, uh, you know, uh, theologically inflected and influenced art. We, we think he was... A student of Proclus, he, he was certainly a student of Christianity, of theology, and, and Neoplatonism, um, and was translated into Latin for the medieval period, monks, um, theologians, scholars, in, in the ninth century. So that is when his um, influence kind of flowered in the medieval period. And so he was considered very much authoritative in the East, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, was a huge influence on Meister Eckhart and, and later Thomas Aquinas and in, in inherits that affinity for triads from, from Proclus. And he, to, he coins these terms that we touched on in the introduction called cataphatic and apophatic. And he makes this distinction that, yes, cataphatic theology is important to learn and to, to grow and develop early on and to kind of establish social norms uh, in, in, in our theological understanding, but that that is inherently limited. And ultimately, uh, for, the, the, um, the mature, for a mature spirituality, we have to come to a point of recognizing our own limitation our own boundaries of conceptualization and articulation, um, the limits of language, the limits of thought that are kind of egocentric 
uh, at some point. They are always conditioned by our, the, the culture and, and our social context and our conditioning. So, so we have to recognize a, a kind of humility is what the, the apophatic way brings about is that, you know, ultimately we have to open ourselves to the possibility of grace rather than kind of um, controlling definitions about God. And so he takes a lot of his terminology from, from Proclus, who is, uh, in fact, a pagan philosopher, but he applies that then to, to this uh, Christian teaching and tradition and, and his own spiritual experience, again, always key with the mystic. And one component of that is that God cannot be fully known. And New Testament language is not fully grasped, but instead has to be experienced. And that the purpose of the divine life is this union with God and is to be taken up into God in intimate union. And, and that there is some kind of inward ascent or, or climb through which this union takes place. So this, this process of, and that spatial metaphor of ascent, of rising, is going to be a consistent theme with the Christian mystics as well. Another uh, of his teaching is that what he, he discusses in his teaching is that the, the manifest hierarchies of the divine beings and the church exist to manifest this process of perfection through the, 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 that threefold path of purgation, illumination, and union. So when Evelyn Underhill, the modern mystic and scholar, is is kind of summarizing the the fivefold uh, stages of of the Christian mystical journey, she's hearkening all the way back to this classical mystic Dionysius, who kind of initially lays out this triad of purgation, illumination, and union that is then picked up by a lot of the later authors. And two of his uh, key works were specifically about the, the, the correspondence of this process of perfection. And um, the church, on the one hand, so it's, he, he has an ecclesiology, and then also the divine beings, sort of uh, outlining the different classifications of, of angels leading up to, to God himself and on the one end of the spectrum and then down to humans on the other end of the spectrum. And then his archetype for this process of becoming perfected is the figure of Moses. And he kind of picks up this thread from the writings of, of Gregory of Nyssa, that Moses is this initial biblical archetype for, for experiencing this process of purgation, illumination, and then union, specifically in his kind of climb up the mountain to receive the law. And he, he sort of interprets that life journey, that arc, as a kind of the, the archetype of, of the spiritual journey of, of the Christian. And then he says, we can know about God cataphatically by affirmation, but ultimately this deals with distinctions and divisions. Whereas ultimately God is one. And there we hear this echo of Plotinus and the, the Neoplatonists of ultimate oneness. And the analogy he brings in this image of sculpture and that we are like sculpture, and that the sculptor, God himself, has an image 
of our ideal selves and mind. And the spiritual journey is about becoming perfected by this process of stripping away. When we apply the mind, uh, cataphatic theology, making distinctions, divisions, categories, that this is in some way misleading because there is an ultimate underlying oneness to God. And that we can know about God then apophatically through that denial of, of misguiding concepts. And that, that God reveals himself, but we can't know it exhaustively or know God exhaustively or with any degree of accuracy through our senses, through our concepts. And again, this isn't to, intended to undermine cataphatic theology but is somehow more fundamental that the nature of God is transcendent beyond the human capacity to, to understand. And a component that he introduces into this, this mystical theology is that the higher we get in our spiritual ascent, the more, quote, brevity comes into its own until the soul is reduced to absolute dumbness of both speech and thought. And uh, that idea that, that speech and thought become less and less the higher we get into uh, the, the spiritual journey is picked up uh, on the one hand by... Dante, uh, as he goes through the, his journey through hell, purgatory, and paradise, as he goes higher and higher through the, the ten spheres of the Paradiso, he ultimately, ha his, his uh, thought and speech become less and less adequate to the experience of the divine until finally he has a beatific vision and is sort of struck dumb um, and unable to articulate what's, what's happening. And, and that harkens back to this this articulation by uh, Dionysius that the higher we go, the less we're able to encapsulate it in, in speech and thought. And then this is picked up later by teachers like Thomas Keating in their teaching on, on centering prayer that there are um, at some point passages of scripture or even single words that become so infused with meaning that the, the further we go on our spiritual journey of, of developing intimacy with God, that um, just introducing that sacred word somehow invokes the meaning and power of, the, of an entire passage or even entire Bible through introducing that word. Somehow thought and language itself changes in quality the higher we go. Uh, along this path, and that has something to do with the way in which consciousness itself is transformed. So these become sort of fundamental concepts in, in the East, in Eastern Orthodoxy. And so another aspect of his teaching was on this celestial hierarchy, or the divine beings, you know, some of his writing. And so he has three, threefold divisions of angels in that celestial hierarchy. And they are as follows the seraphim, the cherubim, the thrones, that, that first triad, the dominations, the powers, the authorities, is that middle triad, and then the principalities, the archangels, and the angels. So that's how he conceptualizes or articulates this celestial hierarchy of division between us and God. And yet, mysteriously, 
God is present at every level, and each of those levels exist in kind of a unique relationship to God. And part of this is to articulate that angels fulfill a function. They praise a God that they do not or cannot um, comprehend or understand fully, but they exist to praise Him. And praise is the fundamental, fundamental way in which we affirm His reality and His qualities. So that's a, an important distinction for Dionysius is the purpose of existence shifts along the spiritual path to praise versus understanding necessarily. And then he discusses in his ecclesiastical hierarchy, which is a kind of commentary on the liturgical services as they already exist to a degree in kind of identifying and taxonomizing and establishing the hierarchy to understand where the elements and components of the liturgy fit in the process. And that first triad is oil, Eucharist, and baptism. And then in the middle, bishops, priests, and deacons. And then the last triad is monks, the baptized, and the excluded. The, the penitents or, or, or catechumens or, or, or even uh, the possessed. And this is to establish kind of proportion and order of every component of, of the liturgy of who fits where. Uh, because in some sense, another thread, certainly through the medieval period, is going to be this divine perfection, order and proportion, and that the components all have their place. And in a sense, the vision that Dionysius articulates is so close to the existing vision of the 4th century theologians that he was quickly accepted as, as, as fundamentally orthodox. And so they ascribed this authority and kind of foundational truth to his, his writings so that they could refer back to it. But in a sense, it's kind of this loop where he was, you know, a Syrian monk and, and, and a, a con- contemporary of that time period, kind of articulating what was in the ether, but became a, a, an authoritative text. And so much of his, his vocabulary and, and the theological context of that time was connected to articulating and, and kind of standardizing the liturgy of the day. And that has to do with the the, the fundamental understanding of the, the elements and their symbolic weight and heft. And in both his celestial and, and ecclesiastical hierarchy, Dionysius writes of this rhythm of purgation, illumination, and union. And it was even more so than in his own writings, really the later medieval mystics who would pick up on that uh, process and apply it to, to the lived spiritual life, even more so than Dionysius himself, though he kind of hints at it. And then another of his works is the, the Divine Names that kind of uh, is heavily influenced by Proclus. And in that work, he discusses the cataphatic attributes of God, in a sense. We can describe God as goodness. We can describe him as life, describe him as, as wisdom, as power, as love. Those are kind of qualities or attributes we can ascribe to God. But um, there's also this sort of symbolic level, how we sort of communicate God in community and through the liturgy of bread, of wine, of water in baptism, oil, incense, are all 
uh, ways through which we can experience God and therefore uh, they, these become these sort of central rituals. And that followed up, of course, on in Christ's term in, uh, or language in the Gospels in which he mentions himself as I am the bread, I am uh, the wine. He specifically discusses the apophatic as distinct from these cataphatic ways of describing God or uh, symbolic ways of communicating God. And the apophatic is that which is then beyond our ability to speak, beyond our ability to name. It is the divine mystery. So there's always this residual expanse, transcendent, beyond what we can grasp or communicate. His major works, uh, 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 the major works of Dionysius First is on the divine names, uh, the celestial hierarchy, which we discussed, the ecclesiastical hierarchy, and his central work for our purposes and certainly for the medieval uh, mystical theologians is a, a brief work called Mystical Theology, and we'll include a link to that um, here as well. And then he had... Um, some some epistles as well. That that mystical theology, which which you can read, um, uh, it's a short but powerful work that deals with that that via negativa uh, apophatic theology negative way in which uh, theology becomes explicitly sort of mystical for the first time. So this is really this first synthesis of someone kind of intentionally developing a mystical theology versus say uh, Saint Augustine where his, the experience that he describes is then interpreted by later scholars and critics as containing mystical theology, mystical components, whereas Dionysius is very intentional in specifically developing a mystical theology. And so here are some passages. I counsel that in the earnest exercise of mystical contemplation, Thou leave the senses and the activities of the intellect and all things that the senses of the intellect can perceive. And, and all things in this world of nothingness or in that world of being and that thine understanding being laid to rest, thou strain as far as thou mayest towards a union with him whom neither being nor understanding can contain. For by the the unceasing and absolute renunciation of thyself in all things, thou shalt in pureness cast all things aside and be released from all. So sh thou shalt be led upwards to that to the ray of that divine darkness which exceedeth all existence. So this understanding of divine darkness, of stripping away sense perception and kind of reaching out to see, perceive, understand, grasp. And that it is through that renunciation of pursuit, of effort, that we come to a deeper understanding of God than is possible otherwise, the divine darkness. That is picked up heavily by later um, mystical theologians and contemplative authors and, and certainly bleeds through in, in the uh, anonymous work called The Cloud of Unknowing in the late medieval period, um, that becomes a central work in the, the spreading of, of the contemplative movement of the 20th century and people like Thomas Merton, 
Thomas Keating and, 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 and others. And then another quote from Mystical Theology. And this I take to signify that the divinest and the highest of the things perceived by the eyes of the body or the mind are but the symbolic language of things subordinate to him who himself transcendeth them all. So God is always more than what is perceivable. Through these things, his incomprehensible presence is shown walking upon those heights of his holy places, which are perceived by the mind, and then it breaks forth, even from the things that are beheld and from those that behold them, and plunges the true initiate into the darkness of unknowing, wherein he renounces all the apprehensions of his understanding, and is enwrapped in that which is wholly intangible and invisible, belonging wholly to him that is beyond all things, and to none else, whether himself and being, uh, through the passive stillness of all his reasoning powers, united by his highest faculty to him that is wholly unknowable, of whom thus by a rejection of all knowledge, he possesses a knowledge that exceeds his understanding. So here we go back to this, these uh, contemplative terms of gnosis, of da'af, of uh, the biblical sense of knowing as a union and an intimacy versus a kind of split knowledge um, of, of information. Unto this darkness which is beyond light, we pray that we may come and may attain unto vision through the loss of sight and knowledge, and that in ceasing thus to see or to know, we may learn to know that which is beyond all perception and understanding. For this emptying of our faculties is true sight and knowledge and that we may offer him that transcends all things the praises of a transcendent hymnody, which we shall do by denying or removing all things that are, like as men who, carving a statue out of marble, remove all the impediments that hinder the clear perspective of the latent image, and by this mere removal display the hidden statue itself in its hidden beauty. So some key takeaways for Dionysius. There's the ascent this introduction of the language of, of apophatic and cataphatic, this negative theology, this threefold path of purgation, illumination, and finally union. And then, in some ways, Dionysius paves the way for later uh, or even contemporary interfaith dialogue because there seems to be an influence, A, the Neoplatonists, as we've said, but also uh, there are parallels to be made to Eastern texts like the Tao Te Ching, like certain Vedic texts, about this inherent oneness as being a quality, an attribute of God. And here's a passage that connects with that. Once more, ascending yet higher, we maintain that it is not soul or mind, or endowed with the faculty of imagination, conjecture, reason, or understanding, nor is it any act of reason or understanding, nor can it be described by the reason or perceived by the understanding, since it is not number or order or greatness or littleness or equality or inequality, and since it is not immovable nor in motion nor at rest nor has no and has no power and is not power or light and does not live and is not life, nor is it personal essence or eternity or time, nor can it be grasped by the understanding since it is not knowledge or truth, nor is it kingship or wisdom, nor is it one, nor is it unity, nor is it Godhead or goodness, nor is it a spirit, as we understand the term, since it is not sonship or fatherhood, since it, it is not any other thing, such as we may 
or any other thing can have knowledge of, nor does it belong to the category of non-existence, or to that of existence, nor to existent beings, nor do existent beings know it uh, as it actually is, nor does it know them as they actually are, nor can the reason attain to it, to name it, or to know it, nor is it darkness, nor is it light, or error, or truth, nor can any affirmation or negation apply to it. For while applying affirmation or negations to those orders of things that come next to it, we apply not unto it either affirmation or negation, inasmuch as it transcends all affirmation by being the perfect and unique cause of all things, and transcends all negation by the preeminence of its simple and absolute nature, free from every limitation, and beyond them all. A quote from Bede Griffiths, the, the great 20th century mystic. Neoplatonism, as found in Plotinus and later developed by Gregory of Nyssa and Dionysius the Areopagite, is the nearest equivalent in the West of the Vedantic tradition of Hinduism in the East. Pseudo-Dionysius or Dionysius the Areopagite becomes this central, foundational kind of uh, convergent figure who paves the way for, for later mystical theologians. <clears throat> 